The following sermon audio is from Parkwood Kings Mountain in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. For more information, go to parkwoodkm.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. Glad you're, you braved the blizzard of 2017, all an inch of it or whatever it was. And uh, got to laugh at the South, what we do with snow. Uh, hope you got your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Genesis 3. As you're turning, I just want to make you aware, because we've changed a few things. You should have actually three pieces of paper this morning. The first is the info guide. When you come in on Sunday, don't forget to get that. What that helps us do is not do this. I don't have to do information. I don't, we don't have to take God's pulpit in this time where we proclaim and exalt his name to, to tell you what's happening. And so try to get this when you come in, and then also pay attention to the screen. That helps you understand what's going on. Also, we now have sermon guides and half sheets where you can take better notes and um, make sure you get that when you come in. And then we also have this morning, we do like to do this once a year, this thing called laboring together. If you already serve and you're happy where you're serving, you don't have to fill this out. Um, but if you're a member or a guest or a regular attender, and we want to help you find a place that God has gifted you. We don't like to fill spots at Parkwood. We like to find where God's gifted you and put you in there so you could serve him and glorify his name through serving. So if you would fill that out, you can just put it in the info guide a little later. So let's, we've got a lot to talk about today, so let's get to it. Genesis 3, stand with me as we read God's word. We stand, this is important this morning, from this point in biblical history, it becomes absolutely essential that God do something. This is a heavy text this morning, and we need to hear it. This comes from God. Genesis 3, God says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, the tree, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity in between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. And you shall eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. At the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Lord, this is your word. And this is a hard word. Because man and woman were never the same after this. So Lord, we must see the truth of your word this morning, so help us clear our minds of any distractions that would distract us from hearing what your word has to say, so that we may, as we have been singing as we want to get to the beauty of the gospel, we must understand the depravity of our own sin before you. So Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Man, you can be seated. So last week, we left this with a picture of the Garden of Eden. Remember, we said it's the Garden of the Lord. It's, guard, it's God's Garden. But in God's garden, when we, we got through, I hope you had this picture of man and woman in a perfect marriage, in a perfect home. It was perfect. We get this, the last thing he said, that they were both naked and not ashamed. Just imagine you were this Jewish audience reading this that were pretty much clothed from head to toe. And they read about this perfect marriage in a perfect place with perfect innocence and no sin. And into this untainted garden comes a new character. He enters in and we see temptation and the fall. So let's talk about the tempter. Look at verse 1. 
It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had God had made. And so we get this, the serpent. So what's up with the serpent? It's important to understand that in the ancient world, the serpent was oftentimes a god of healing. Matter of fact, if you look at some of the medical signs now, what do you see? You'll see a snake wrapped around the middle. That's where that come from. So the, the people would see the serpent then as this god of healing. And so you see this just the opposite of what we've been seeing all along. This crafty snake comes around. There's a mystery behind this. The, the author, the writer is tearing this narrative. He doesn't give you an explanation about the snake. Doesn't tell you about its nature, doesn't tell you anything about it. It wants us to focus on what the snake is saying. That's the point. Praise God for his word. Turn with me to Revelation 12, 9, because the whole Bible helps us understand what's going on here. Revelation 12, verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The revelation helps us, doesn't it? We see that this is Lucifer, the fallen angel in disguise, taking on the form or indwelling this serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. And so he engages the woman. We see the temptation. It says immediately, this we see him come on the scene, and immediately the temptation starts. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat the tree of the garden? And so it's important for us to stop for just a second and ask ourselves a question. Who am I having an abiding conversation with this morning, God or Satan? Some of them say, I would, I would never have an abiding conversation with Satan. Keep in mind, the goal, the goal of this temptation to start with is doubt. It is doubt through a conversation. And if you remember, don't look at it now, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, the devil tries to engage him in a conversation, but what did the devil always get? Somebody tell me. Scripture. He didn't carry on a conversation with him. Go back and read it. Every time, he, every time there was an engagement, there was simply a proclamation of God's word. No conversation, but there was a conversation. He ensues it. Doubt. What is he wanting them to doubt? Well, he's wanting them, wanting them to doubt God's word. But what did God's word, had God's word revealed to him? What had God's word provided for him? He wanted them to ultimately doubt God's grace and God's goodness. This is the beginning of their temptation. This is the beginning of ours. Doubt God's goodness. In other words, the way he couched the question was designed to accent God's prohibition as if it was unfair as if God wasn't good, just to get her to talk about it, just to begin to think and say, can, he, can I get her to question this? So why that question? Am I having an abiding conversation with God or the devil? Because John 15, 7 tells us, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done to you. In other words, if you're not abiding in God's word, what are you abiding in? The devil will take you out by default if we are not abiding in God's word. So we did here. He engaged her in a conversation and she, and she engages him and said, and the woman said, look at verse 2, and the woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat 
of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So at this point, the devil knows I've got her just where I want her. She's beginning to believe it. She's beginning to doubt in her mind because she exaggerates the command and minimizes the penalty. This is what she's doing. When she says, neither shall you touch it, God has said nothing about that. So all of a sudden, she's beginning to exaggerate the prohibition. Not the accent of everything that, that was God's that God had said that they could enjoy, but to say, we can't even touch this thing, lest we die. And God says, oh no, you shall surely die. So this is happening. And we see the conversation goes on. But the serpent, look at verse 4. But the serpent said, you, sh- you will not surely die, for God knows that w- when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what happens? We go from doubt to denial, to doubt God's goodness, to an outright denial, an outright lie. So what is the essence of this temptation? God is not good. He's holding out on you. He's holding out on you. Made in his image. <laughs> you can be like God. Why do you need him to tell you what's right and wrong? Why do you need him to tell you what's good and bad? You can decide for yourself. He's holding out on you. John 8, verse 44. Interesting, Jesus is talking to the most religious people in that time the Pharisees in this conversation. John 8, verse 44, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so the father of lies is going to work. And here's what he wants to plan inside of us by this God's holding out on you. Did God really say, you can be like God? Well, here's what he's saying. There's no real punishment for disobedience. God's just holding out on you. There's no punishment. But the Bible again and again tells us, disobedience brings death. And this is the doubt. They didn't believe what God had said. So what's the difference here? As we think about Eve and the temptation, and we'll talk about Adam in a minute because he's standing right there. Where's the point between temptation and sin? James 1.13. James 1.13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then, listen, then desire when it, is, it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Keep that verse in your mind as, this, as the fall happens. And I think you'll see the point when temptation became sin. So this is the climax of the story. Satan has done his work. He has set the bait, so to speak. Will she take it? What are they going to do? 
verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the, the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now think about the irony of this, thinking about chapter 1. Chapter 1, God was creating things from nothing and saying it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And at the end saying it's very good. Everything, remember we said it's not only good because, because it looks good, it's good because it's functioning according to what he purposed for it. And here, for the man and the woman, good is no longer rooted in what God says is good. What God says enhances life. Good is in what they think is desirable to elevate their life. This is the, what is going on in here. And make no mistake, Adam had directly received this command from God and he stood there in silence. It's hard for us to see it when we read the text. But when the serpent is speaking to Eve, he does so with plural verbs. In other words, Adam is standing right there during this whole encounter. And he does so in silence. So 1 John 2.16 is not just applying to the woman. 1 John 2.16 says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Look at verse 6 with me. You see these two words come up. Desire and delight. That what she is seeing, she desires it. What she sees, she's delighting in it. And, and make no mistake, what... This will be even clearer into the original language. This comes back up again in Deuteronomy 5.21 with the Lord, with the commandments. This is the same words used for coveting. What, what she saw, she wanted. What she saw was something that was not hers. We often hear, why did God allow that tree of knowledge and good and evil to be planted in the garden? This is why it's God's garden. It's God's tree. And he gave them to eat of everything in the garden that was already his. But this one, he said, don't eat it. It's God's. And what she did is went from doubting his goodness to wanting something that does not belong to her. And saying, I desire it, I delight it, I shall have it. 1 Timothy 2.14 1 Timothy 2.14 says this, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so lest we men sit here and say, Mm-hmm, she was deceived. He got her, took her to the cleaners right quick. Let me ask us a question. If Adam was standing right there and he wasn't deceived, what was he? What was he? If he wasn't sitting there, if he wasn't duped by all this, and the Bible's clear, she was, she was deceived. But Adam wasn't, what was it? It was direct disobedience. Passivity is rebellion against God. Passivity is not nothing. Passivity is not sinning. Adam was deliberately rebellious. 
He stood there having received the commands of God and did nothing. Turn with me to Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. As you turn there, let me stress the importance of something. It is important that you go to growth group. If you're not a part of a growth group, you're missing a big chunk of the message today because I came to deal with original sin. I'm letting the growth group leaders deal with that today. So I hope you go to your growth group, whether it's was already happened or whether it's tonight or through the week, because I can't deal with this in part, but I will in full, but I will deal with it in part. So let's look at Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so let's ask ourselves a question. Did you start being a sinner when you sinned? Or do you sin? Because you are by nature a sinner. That's an important question. Sin is not outside of us. Sin, we sin because we're sinners. In other words, this might be bad news for somebody this morning. That says, little Johnny's a good boy. He just sometimes does bad things. No. No. No, I'm sorry, that's just not what God's Word says. Romans 3 says that none of us does good. None of us desires good. None of us seeks after God. Everybody, including little Johnny, has a problem with a holy God because of the sin that Adam committed. He passes on sin in your very nature. We sin because we are sinners. Therefore, Ephesians 2, 1 applies to everybody that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are under wrath and we are children of wrath by nature. And so we see this sin happen. The immediate effects of sin are obvious. They're immediate. Verse 7, the eyes of them were both open and knew they were naked and then they sought to clothe themselves. So we need to deal with something right here that the knowledge of good and evil is not some neutral state that they achieved. It's not some state of maturity. It's not some natural state of evolution that they evolved at this point, that they received, and we've all at some point, in some point in our life, bought into this. I use careful language, but if your child is in here, they probably need to be talking about this anyway. Did not all of us or some of us and some of y'all are students right now buying to this lie that sexual promiscuity is somehow takes us to some point of maturity in manhood or womanhood. And we all sort of buy into that at some point in time in high school. And then in college, as we said, there's some kind of rite of passage. And what did we get? Simply the lie of the devil. The doubting God's goodness and His design for sexuality. We doubted it. So we begin to covet someone who doesn't belong to us. And in taking them, what did we get? Shame. Shaming them, shaming ourselves, and making it a little bit harder to know true intimacy and what it looks like and what it feels like. And make no mistake, us married couples do the same thing. When we, having a hard time in our own marriage, look across the way and say, that's good. And God said, that's death. This was what happens. God's image bearers no longer trusted His goodness. They no longer trusted His plan. And what did they gain? Shame. The shame was immediate. And so 
beautiful paradise becomes a courtroom. And the keepers of the garden are put on a criminal trial. We see both a confrontation and a confession. Look at verse 8. A guilty conscience conceals. We see it in verse 8. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cold of the day, what did they do? They hid themselves. From what? The presence of the Lord. And so this was immediate. And so they both hid themselves. In other words, all their intimate relationships instantly changed. But look at this. We see mercy in judgment all through this passage. As the Lord God seeks them and confronts them in their sin. Just the fact that the sovereign creator came seeking should amaze us because he didn't have to. He didn't have to seek them. He did. And we see mercy. And the force of what they've said, the force of what God said when he came, is what in the world have you done? This is the force of what he's saying. Do you understand what you've done? And so what did ensue here? Verses 12, verse 13, blame shifting. And we've all done that, haven't we? (laughs) Confronted with something that we've done wrong, we begin to point the fingers. Somebody's fault, something's fault. Listen, this is important life principle. Blame shifting is deception. Blame shifting is sin. And so all Adam and Eve did here is compound their sin on another sin because they blamed someone else for what they had done. But at the end of the day, in verse 12 and verse 13, both of them ends up admitting, I ate. I ate. So listen, don't miss the point. God's courtroom right here is happening. And the courtroom that will happen. Blaming our backgrounds and our parents, our genes and our society for our own choices is ruled out in the courtroom of God. Your sin is your responsibility. And it will either be dealt with on the cross or in hell. There is only one way for our sins to be dealt with. That's the beauty of the gospel. So with this admission of sin comes judgment. But also promise. We see immediately in verse 14 that the serpent is cursed. The serpent is cursed. When something is cursed, God's cut his blessing off to it. See, remember, all the animals were created good, and they were blessed by God. But here we have the serpent being cursed. Well, what about Satan? Wasn't Satan really behind this? John 16, verse 11 tells us that the ruler of this world, the, the serpent, the devil, has already been judged. He's already been judged. So this is important this morning. Listen to me. You need to feel the weight of this. Lucifer and a third of his angels decided, desired to be like God. Lucifer desired to be like God in his power, in his authority. And God judged them, and God condemned them, and God damned them, and he gave them no Savior. And they will go to hell. So let us feel this before we ever say God owes us salvation. God owes us judgment. He does not owe us salvation. 
We must feel this weight so that we can fall on our faces before the cross that we did not deserve. So he's, there is promise in this judgment. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to talk about this even more in application, but you should have two fill in the blanks on your notes. The first one is God promised, give them a promise of an ongoing conflict. We see that in both enmity and offspring. That not only that there's enmity here, but there's going to be enmity in the future. Just wait till next week. (laughs) Cain and Abel come on the scene. And it only gets worse from there. But we also have the promise of ultimate victory. That even though this sin is going to be passed on from one generation to the other, it's going to be constant conflict between good and evil, yet ultimately God will preserve the seed of a woman and through that seed victory will come. So we also see the woman being judged. The woman is judged. But we see punishment, not cursing. Verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So what does all this mean? It means that being a godly wife and mother is going to be exponentially harder than what it was. Yes, motherhood's still going to come. It's still going to come, but with great pain. That word pain here is not simply, not merely the physical pain of childbirth. This is both the physical and the emotional pain of rearing children. This came from the fall. Marriage, yes, is still instituted, and it is still blessed, but it is going to be harder to have a healthier marriage. Look at verse 16. It says, Your your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, clearly here, clearly this cannot mean that your husband is going to be the leader and the wife's going to submit. Why can it not mean that? Because that's the way God's plan was for a perfect marriage. <laughs> that was the way He originally designed it. So what's happening here because of sin is a perversion of that. So what does it mean? So what we see here in this punishment is what we call the battle of the sexes. This strife, this enmity, the harmonious relationship that that was true last week, is not true this week. Love is wrecked. And what it's going to be replaced by, look at the text, is exploitation, subjection, and struggling. Instead of partnering in complementary roles, there's going to be each one trying to subvert the other, trying to rule over the other one. This is what we all experience, don't we? And if you don't believe it, simply look at a non-Christian culture. And what you're going to find in a non-Christian culture is the domination, abuse, and neglect of women. Almost without exception through history and even up to today. You see, sin separates us from God, but it also separates us from each other. This is the constant struggle because the constant struggle goes on in our very nature. This is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That not only that God through Christ reconciles us to himself, but now he gives us the ability 
to be able to reconcile our relationships with each other so that in Christ we can have a marriage that obeys God. So finally, he turns to Adam as both the provider of his own family and head of the human race. And we see God in his mercy cursing the ground and not Adam. Adam sinned willfully. He sinned willfully. And his willful sin plunged us in, all of us, the human race, into sin. And what God said is work's now going to become toil. You're still going to eat. But guess what you're going to have now when you go out to work the garden? Weeds. Crabgrass. Don't you just hate that stuff? It grows underneath the ground, and you pull it up here, and it's over there too, and you can't get rid of it. Here's what I want you to understand in verse 17. The natural relationship to the ground was, yes, we were formed out of it, but God told us to rule over it. Now it's going to be reversed. Instead of the ground submitting to us, it's going to resist us. And listen, eventually it's going to swallow us. It will swallow us, it swallows our family, and it swallows all of mankind because of sin. This is the ultimate judgment, death. Death. Death comes, and this is bad, isn't it? Bad. I want you to feel the bad. You need to feel it this morning. God's not done. It's not done. There's both provision and more prohibition here. We see, verse 20, The man shall call his wife's name Eve, and she shall be the mother of all living. In other words, God's still going to use them. God did not extinguished the human race at this point, and he could have. And he would have been a good, loving, just God if he would have. But no, he says, Eve's going to be the mother of all living. And then, in this amazing, merciful, foreshadowing act, God kills something innocent and covers Adam and Eve. This foreshadows the cross that because of sin, something's got to die. Make no mistake, the prohibition is clear. Paradise is lost. It's lost. Notice verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. They are separated from God's abiding fellowship. Separated. This should pierce your soul to understand what happened here. At the fundamental level was a break in a fellowship with the God that we were intimate with. Eden, the perfect place of fellowship, was lost. Not only that, we were alienated from eternal life. Alienated from it. Verses 22. What's going on in, in this with, with God not letting them eat the tree of life anymore? Listen to this quote. Eating from one tree kept the, human, the humans from eating from the other. Or if we say it in other terms of the spiritual reality behind the story, when the human beings disobeyed God and experienced evil, they were preventing from living on perpetually in that state. The life that they were experiencing in the garden 
in relationship, in an eternal abiding relationship with God, was severed. And so here's the question. Yes, paradise is lost, but could they ever return? Could humanity ever go back to the garden? You see, if humanity is to go back to the garden, they must enter the garden without sin and without death. You see the problem? You see the problem? The conflict is set. That which we ultimately desire to do, we cannot do. This will require a second Adam, a better Adam, who must clothe us with his righteousness and walk us into God's garden. This is the so what? Jesus Christ, the promised seed, gave his life as the ultimate sacrifice to rescue us from the fall and open a new and a living way. Turn with me to Genesis 3, verse 16. I mean, Galatians, sorry. Galatians 3, 16. Remember Genesis 3, 15 as you turn to Galatians 3, 16. Because there was a promise that, the, that Satan was going to bruise the woman's... She was going to experience pain. And so God promised in Genesis 3.15 that through the offspring of a woman, the victory is coming. And so God called a man named Abraham and made a covenant with him. And he made him a promise. And I want you to see what that promise was this morning. Because I'll be honest with you, most of my life I've never seen this. I want you to see it this morning. Galatians 3, 16. Now the, promise were, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. You need to underline that in your Bible. The ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, according to God's word, is Jesus Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, until Christ should come to whom the promise had been made. But it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Do you see it? Mary's son died. And though the devil may have thought he had his day, he only proved to accomplish God's purposes because that was the seed. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every covenant. They all point to him. He died to cover our sins with his righteousness. And so Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His, the, the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. 
This is the gospel. Jesus was physically born. He took on a human nature. He is the second Adam. Who took on a nature just like us. And he lived an obedient life. This was his active obedience. Someone had to meet God's standard because Adam and Eve didn't do it. Nor did anyone else in, in history, including me and you. But God lived a physical life and a perfectly obedient life and met God's standard. And so he stood and died in our place. And when he did, he bore our shame. He took our punishment. He satisfied God's wrath. Satisfied God's justice. His resurrection then is our resurrection. His life, our life. So yes, the fall is worse than what we imagine. But the promise is greater. It's greater than we could ever think of. Are you trusting? I'm not asking you if you did trust. I'm not asking that question this morning. I'm asking, are you trusting right now in Christ as your sin and shame bearer? And if, if so, Hebrews 10 is good news. Hebrews 10 and verse 19 says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house, let us draw near with, true, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So you see, Eden is not merely a restored place. Eden is not merely a destination that we will go one day. And if those are in Christ, we will. Ultimately, it is God through Christ reconciling us to God Himself so that we might have a relationship with Him. And if we are reconciled, if we are trusting today, then these promises of Hebrews is, is ours. An eternal mediator which gives us open doors straight into the presence of God. Do you see it? It is our Lord Jesus Christ who clothed us in His righteousness and walked us into the garden right into the presence of God where we can have full assurance. Because not God not only redeems your nature, but if you're in Christ, He's purifying your life right now. And this is our assurance. This is our hope. Because every day as we're fixing to sing, Jesus paid it all. And so I don't have to carry it. I can trust Him. He determines what's good. He determines what's right. And in that I can have delight and joy. So yes, the fall is terrible. And we see it every day. And as we continue in God's word, it's only going to get worse. But we have the hope of the promise of Christ. And we now who have experienced Christ knows that what God does in your life is breaks the power of sin. And one day, one day, we will be free from the presence of it forever. So Lord, we long for that day. We do. Lord, you know our yesterdays and you know our this mornings. You know that though, Lord, we don't want to sin against your name, we still struggle with it. 
So, Lord, we long for the day where sin will be no more. That this conflict, that this battle that goes on inside of ourself for self-gratification and self-sacrifice can finally be won and we can love you and serve you forever in your presence. But, Lord, help us today. Because you know, Lord, today is hard. It's hard. It's hard to be a father. It's hard to be a mother. It's hard to be a pure single Christian that lives in today's culture. So, Lord, help us, Lord, to win the battle that often is inside our own minds. Save us, Lord. Save souls now through the power of your word, because you are a merciful God that has provided us a new and living way. And so, Lord, now we stand to our feet and praise the one who paid it all, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand to your feet and let's worship our Lord.